0: You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Annapolis, Maryland. I'm Pastor Joey, and I hope what you're about to hear blesses you, increases your love and knowledge of Jesus, and answers any questions that you might have
1: about him. Our scripture this morning is going to be from John chapter 19, verse 38, through chapter 20, verse 18. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, But secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Now on the first day of week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter following him and went into the tomb. Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you had laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to him, I am ascending to my Father, and your Father to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he said, he had said these things to her.
0: The Bible opens with the words In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he created all matter by the word of his mouth, then skillfully fashioned matter into the world that we inhabit. So think about everything in our world, moss and wildflowers and barley, wheat, red oaks, green pines, deserts, rainforests, stars, galaxies, clouds, and fog. It's all God's creation. And the final touch was who would inhabit this world. He then created mankind in his image and likeness and then rested from his work as man was commissioned to continue it. The world was a place full of creative potential, and humanity was privileged with access to the presence of God. Yet, the first man sinned. He broke trust with God, thinking that he could be like God. And since then, societies have been fractured by sin, never quite able to reach their potential in this world. Mankind has been enslaved to sin, trying to be their own God, but without His goodness and without His power. And most tragic of all, the relationship mankind was created for has been replaced by alienation. We do not walk with God. Instead, we walk away from God or in opposition to God. But, tucked in the darkness of lost potential and lost presence, there's a line that should give us hope back in the Genesis story. Genesis 3.15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, your seed, and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the serpent is given a word of promise. There will be a future offspring from Adam's lineage who will put an end to the devil's tyranny, to sin, to death. But how? How? How will this come to pass and What will change and what will that mean for me and what will that mean for you? Fast forward 4,500 years through Israel's saga of slavery and exile and failure after failure to the streets of Nazareth and Galilee and the hills of Judea where a blue-collar worker turned rabbi takes up preaching and healing. He challenges the religious hollowness of his day He shows compassion to the vulnerable. He eats and drinks with sinners. He claims to be sent from God. And the question that everyone's wondering is could this be Adam's seed? Could this be that future offspring that we were promised, that the woman was promised, who crushed the head of the serpent and bring an end to sin and death? A week from this moment in John, the the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. But now Jesus is condemned a criminal, paraded on a Roman cross, and killed. And it's like the light of the world was snuffed out by the darkness. And it's in this darkness now that our story continues. So go to chapter 19, verse 38. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea He was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So it's interesting here, we meet these men who had all along secretly been followers of Jesus, but they kept it a secret because they were part of the Sanhedrin. And if, that, if word got out that they were secretly a disciple of Jesus, they'd be blacklisted by their community. They might lose the power and the saddest that they enjoyed in this time. Yet now, they make known their loving devotion for Jesus by asking for his body, because if nobody claims Jesus' body, his body would be sent outside the gates to the trash dump where he'd be, you know burned, he'd be burned with the trash of the day. That's what happened to criminals if nobody claimed their body. And so they prepare Jesus's body for burial. They give him the proper burial, which is very, very expensive. This is how they honor Jesus. And as you read this, you have to feel this tension, this struggle here. A little little late, don't you think? For these men who've been following Jesus secretly now to show him honor, now to show him devotion— Why would these men go public with their devotion to Jesus now of all times, when clearly he's been snuffed out, when maybe, perhaps, he's a fraud? What's the motivation? Are they moved by sympathy? Are they moved by the disgust that they've seen the people in the Sanhedrin who they work with, how they treated Jesus? What's the motivation for this? And we don't know. We don't know why. They chose this timing and what their motivations were, but all we can say for certain is that they're trying to bring honor to a very dishonorable conclusion. It's a dark time, but there is a glimmer of hope that just begins as we continue through the story, verses 41 and 42. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which nobody had been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So, as you read this, these verses on the surface, John's just merely reporting where Jesus' body has been laid. There's good reason for his body to be placed in a tomb that no one's been laid before, because Jesus, being now a criminal, if he was laid somewhere where other bodies were laid, that would be seen as highly offensive. So, Jesus is buried is buried in isolation. Additionally, they they had to take Jesus's body down from the cross and bury him very, very quickly because at sundown, it was Sabbath. And during Sabbath, there's to be no bodies hung on the cross. There's no work to be done. There's no bodies to be buried. So they do these things in short order. So John, on one hand, on the surface is just merely recounting the details, giving report of things that have come to pass. But If you're a Jewish reader, which many of John's readers are obviously Jewish, and they know their Old Testament, they know their story, they know their heritage, and they know their identity, they know that these verses are way too theologically loaded to just simply be a report of the happenings. Jesus is placed in a garden, in a tomb that no one has yet been laid in, and those details are theologically significant. So you need to remember that the Gospels and the New Testament, when you turn to the Gospels and the New Testament to read it, nothing you're reading is disconnected from the Old Testament. Everything you're reading has some sort of association or relationship to something in the Old Testament, a fulfillment of some anticipation, of some longing, of some promise, of some type in the Old Testament. And that's what the authors of the New Testament are trying to show, that Jesus, the Gospel, everything that he's achieved, it's a fulfillment of long Standing longings and anticipations throughout the Old Testament. It's called typology in the Old Testament. There are real historical people, places, and things that have greater significance that meets the eye. They point to a more ultimate reality. So, when you read that Jesus is laid in an empty tomb that nobody has ever been laid in, you should recall the very beginning when the earth was formless and void. It was in that darkness of undeveloped world that God fashioned creation. New creation came out of nothing. And so just as the world at one time was raw material that God harnessed into new creation, so this tomb is untouched, unoccupied, and there God brings about new life. And when you read that this tomb is in a garden, you should recall the Garden of Eden, Go with me to chapter 20, verse 15. I'll just read one statement that should catch your eye in that verse. It says, Mary Magdalene, when she sees Jesus, yet not knowing that it's actually Jesus, supposes him to be the gardener. That's not a coincidence that John records that. He wants us to connect some dots here. Here's what's interesting, okay? The Bible begins in a garden, and it ends in a garden. When you go to the book of Revelation, see how John describes The world that Jesus is going to bring about finally and ultimately is described in Edenic terminology, garden imagery, letting us know that when Jesus completely rids the world of sin and brokenness, it's going to be like we're restored to the garden reality, life before God in his presence, unfiltered access and relationship to him. But here's what's interesting. This is happening in the middle of history. This garden event is happening in the middle of history, not the end of history. In the middle of history, the empty tomb is located in a garden, and Jesus is the gardener. This event is recorded in a way that gives the impression that the life in the age to come is already upon us now. And this event is to be understood as a new creation event. It's like Jesus is a new Adam in a new garden, launching a new world with a new humanity. That's what the empty tomb means. Here's your first point. Resurrection is new creation. Resurrection is new creation. Now, we usually don't think of the resurrection as new creation, but it is. We should see the resurrection as achieving the very same thing God did when he created and formed the world and breathed life into humanity. Just like God ushered in reality and humanity, now God does the very same thing through the resurrection of Jesus from an empty tomb in a garden. In fact, when we we read the Old Testament and we see the Old Testament passages about resurrection, where there's anticipation of some sort of resurrection that's going to take place, it's always couched in creation terminology. And so I'm going to read a few key verses in the Old Testament that talk about resurrection. You're going to see this for yourself. They're each written to exiles in Babylon. You remember that Israel, when they would break the covenant with God, the judgment would be that they'd be exiled from the promised land and they'd be taken away. That happened to it in, at some point with Assyria and it happened with Babylon and then it happens with Rome. This happened over and over. And so each of these verses I'm about to read are written to exiles in Babylon who are awaiting Release from exile, a homecoming. And they understood this resurrection language to refer to a national resurrection where they'd be moved back to their homes. It was a new creation event of sorts. So in Daniel chapter 12, he says this And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. There's resurrection language. Some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall, shall, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. Those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. There's new creation terminology. So resurrect, the resurrection language is used to talk about release from exile. When the nation of Israel is quote-unquote resurrected, released from exile, they would be a new creation of sorts. See that? That's what they would understand as they read Daniel chapter 12. Isaiah 26 writing to the same exiles in Babylon, says this, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. Again, you see here Israel, when they're resurrected from exile and return to the land, it's pictured as a new creation event, like the dawning of a new morning. Ezekiel 37, one last, one last Old Testament longing here of resurrection. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live and I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin. Put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. Now this chapter, it's a vision of an army that's decomposed and dead and God breathes life into this army and all of a sudden they're resuscitated and re-embodied. God recreates and resurrects And again, the original readers who are reading Ezekiel would understand this to be talking about their release from captivity, their reinstatement back in their homeland, in the promised land, and it's pictured as a new creation event, the God breathing life like he did into Adam's nostrils. So all in all, you see here, resurrection is seen as this new creation event A new creation, it's seen as a homecoming, homecoming to the land where God's people would dwell with him. To sum it all up, what I'm trying to say here, N.T. Wright, premier scholar on the resurrection, says this. It'll be behind me on the screen. The promise of resurrection is thus firmly linked to creation itself, which was the basis of the normal ancient Israelite celebration of life in the present, bodily life in Yahweh's good land, the promised land. This robust affirmation of the goodness of life in Yahweh's world and land is what is called into question when Israel sins and faces punishment in the form of national catastrophe, exile. We should not be surprised then, he writes, when at, the point, when at that point, it is to the language of creation itself that the prophets turn for help. So here's what's significant. Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate creation event, new creation event. His resurrection achieves what no previous resurrection has achieved. His resurrection achieves release from spiritual exile and restoration to our spiritual home, which is life with God, walking before him, our soul's very homecoming. We have it better than any ancient Israelite had who was released from Assyria or released from Babylon. They went home to Israel to be near the temple, back in the presence of God in that way. But we are spiritually released from the bondage of sin and death and released back into what we were created for life with God. That's what the resurrection of Jesus walking out of an empty tomb in a garden has achieved for us a new creation a new world, a new kind of humanity in the middle of time. So friends, we've heard the phrases, you're born again, or you're regenerated as ways to talk about what happens when you put your faith in Jesus. But biblically, we can also understand that a new creation has occurred when we put our faith in Jesus Just like God created a world and a humanity through the resurrection of Jesus, he has created a new world and a new humanity. So this is why Romans 5 calls Jesus the second Adam, a new Adam, a better Adam. This is why the epistles call you and I new creation and new selves, a new humanity. Because through the resurrection, that's exactly what has occurred in the middle of history and available to you and I right here, right now, not just at the end of time, but right here and right now. So some phrases that capture what this means is this. In Jesus, you have a restart. In Jesus, you have a clean slate. In Jesus, you have a new beginning. In Jesus, you have a new lease on life. That's what the empty tomb in the garden means. It's very significant. It changes everything. Isn't it incredibly comforting that when we share in this resurrection, we possess hope that things can actually be different, that you and I can actually change. We don't have to remain stuck in broken patterns of thinking and broken cycles of sin. And I know it sounds cheesy, but literally, because of the resurrection, when it's applied to you, every day is a new beginning. God's mercies are new every single morning. There is always hope, always power available for you to undergo deep, real transformation. Resurrection is new creation and nothing less. Nothing less. Let's continue the story though. Keep on reading into chapter 20. Read with me. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have laid him. So Peter went out uh, with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. That's a wink and a nod to this is John, who uh, outpaced Peter here. Stooping back in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there as if a, a body that was in that, wrapped in that, has just passed through it and it remained with all the spices in it, surrounding it, and then we keep on reading what else. Also, the face cloth was there which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. A nice humorous touch by Jesus there to fold his laundry very nicely and neatly for his friends to notice. So there's great detail in the scene. Okay. If you were paying attention, there's a lot of really vivid kind of random detail in this scene, isn't there? John includes the timing of these events, names of people involved in this event, how the linens and the face cloth were uh, laying there and folded. John is writing a report. John is accounting for actual history. So this is not written in a way that promotes a lie. It's written in a way that a genuine report would be written in. So It should make you think to yourself, reading this account, it's pretty realistic for fabrication. (laughs) This is pretty realistic if you were trying to sell some sort of propaganda. This is pretty realistic if you were trying to just like dupe people into believing a lie and covering something up. You wouldn't lay breadcrumbs. You wouldn't have any accountability embedded within the story. You wouldn't have names and timing and these kinds of things that could be followed up with immediately in these people's lifetime. And so it should make you think, this is pretty, re- pretty realistic. So then it must be genuine. It must be actual history that's being reported here. So upon seeing the cloths lying there, as if Jesus' body had passed through, John, the author here, the eyewitness here, he notices what's happening, and he connects the dots between the Old Testament, what we just read, and what he's seeing with his very eyes. Keep reading in verses 8 through 10. Then the other disciple, that's John, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. He connected the dots. He realized, oh, that resurrection language, that resurrection framework, it's not actually about being just released from Babylon. It must be about something more. Now, he was the only one to make that conclusion. It was him and him alone, because we keep on reading it. And it says this, "...for as yet they," meaning Mary and Peter, "...did not yet understand the Scriptures, so it didn't come to their brains." They didn't understand it. They didn't understand that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes." So the story continues, and we move from resurrection as new creation to resurrection being something else, equally powerful and, and transformative, which is resurrection means new standing, a new standing before God. And the attention is now drawn to Mary, Mary Magdalene, verses 11 and 12. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. If you are a nerd, like a Bible nerd, you should be really excited right now, because this is really significant. Do you see what he's, do you see, like in your imagination, what John is describing here? Mary walks in, where Jesus' body would have been lain, like this rectangle where Jesus' body would rest, and she sees two angels, one at the feet, one at the head. So your theological, you know, uh, uh, your theological uh, alerting should be going off right now. What does that look like? It looks like the Ark of the Covenant. It looks like the lid that was placed on top of the Ark of the Covenant, where the two cherubims were forged one at the head and one at the feet. And the reason why this is so, so, so significant is because on the Day of Atonement, once a year, the high priest, after thoroughly ceremonially cleansing himself, would go into the Holy of Holies the place where God's presence was, and he would make atonement for the whole nation of Israel, bringing a bucket of blood with a hyssop branch, dipping the hyssop branch in that bucket and splattering the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat, that lid, seven times, the number of completion. That's what he did to make atonement for all the sins of the nation on that one singular day. But he'd have to do it year after year after cleansing himself. It was never an extensive forgiveness. It was just a temporary covering. But here we see the empty tomb as that mercy seat, as the Ark of the Covenant, this constant memorial to Jesus' final work, the ultimate day of atonement that he has brought about through his resurrection. Jesus has made final atonement. That's what this image means to us. His death on the cross has satisfied the wrath of God against sin. His resurrection has sealed it let me just run through a few verses through Hebrews that make this so clear. Hebrews 7 says this, Jesus has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily for his first for his own sins and then for the sins of others. Since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself, it is finished. Hebrews 9, continuing, says this, He entered once for all into the holy places, like the innermost holy of holies. It's like Jesus is the ultimate high priest, but not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, his divine perfect blood, thus securing, promising an eternal redemption once and for all. Hebrews nine twenty six Jesus has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin, by the sacrifice of himself. So Jesus is his empty tomb. It means final atonement. So then, we who have put our faith in Jesus, we're not awaiting more forgiveness. We're not awaiting more reconciliation. We don't fear wrath. We don't f- fear judgment because. The empty tomb with these two angels sitting where Jesus's body lays screams to us it is finished once and for all. Our standing before God has been achieved and it will never ever be overturned. Your standing before God your your relationship with him it's not on the basis of your badness. Like your sin and your mistakes don't alter your standing before God. And here's the even better news. Your goodness, how well you have it together, also does not alter your standing that you have before God. The standing that you have before God is never on the basis of your goodness or badness. It's on the basis of the final atonement that Jesus has brought about his perfection, his righteousness, his wrath-satisfying death, and then his resurrection, which stamps it with God's approval so our standing with God will never be overturned. That's really good news, and we see this play out actually. The kind of transformation that final atonement brings, it plays out in the narrative. We see it play by play. So let's go ahead and read, uh, continuing through the story. The first person I want to draw your attention back to is Mary. Back in verse 1, she's the first one to witness the empty tomb, to report it. And it's interesting, she's given a prominent attention. You notice that. She comes up over and over again. She's probably the main character in this scene, Mary Magdalene is. Here's what's interesting about that. Women were not viewed as credible sources in the, in the court of law. They would not be given that sort of status in this patriarchal society. Uh, they, they would not be put on record as, as a witness to any event at all, any trial at all. So oftentimes women were suppressed, which makes... The fact that John's recording Mary as the key eyewitness here, again, this doesn't make sense That's a fabrication. If you were trying to fabricate this, you would never consult a woman on the matter in this time. It wouldn't be convincing. So therefore, John must be trying to write just plain, real history. But also, this is something really incredible about atonement and what it achieves for us. Keep on reading 13 through 16, chapter 20, verse 13 through 16. They said to her, the angels, "'Woman, why are you weeping?' And she turned and said in Aramaic, Rabboni, Rabbi, which means teacher. Here's what's interesting. She knows that it is Jesus by the way he speaks her name. It's dark out at this time. That's why she wouldn't exactly see who Jesus was in the dark. But when he speaks, it's his voice, how he says her name, that clues her that this is Jesus in flesh, resurrected. So the significance of this is obviously between Mary and Jesus, there's an earnest, real friendship. Clearly they've had conversation. Clearly they've had dialogue. And this is confirmed when she calls him what? Rabboni, rabbi, teacher. Now, again, this is a patriarchal society. In this time, to be an apprentice of a rabbi, to call a man rabbi was exclusively reserved for men. Women women weren't involved in that kind of apprenticeship. They weren't allowed to speak in the synagogues or go into the inner court of the temple. But here, she confirms what we have seen through the Gospels, that she's a disciple. She's not in, in, in the inner circle. She's not one of the 12 apostles, but she follows Jesus. She gives to his ministry. She sits under his teaching. He knows her name. They've had conversations The reason the sound of her name signals to her that this is Jesus is because she has apprenticed under him and had conversation with him. She has heard him say her name many times. This is what the gospel does. It makes disciples out of the unexpected. It makes disciples out of people you would never think would be disciples. That's the kind of hope resurrection brings. Nobody is too far out nobody is disqualified. When we are reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus, we're given a standing before God that outshines any other standing we can imagine. Now, some of us in here are trying to establish ourselves before our family and our friends and our coworkers and our bosses. We want a really prominent, significant standing, and it's just exhausting. And the, what the gospel does is it levels that out. It It takes that burden off your back. Stop doing the idolatrous rat race of life, trying to constantly earn other people's approval by establishing yourself. The resurrection has already done that for you, established your standing before the only person whose opinion matters, your Father in heaven. But the gospel also tells you this. If you have no significance... If you don't feel like you have much worth, if you don't feel like you have much to contribute, the gospel elevates you and esteems you because it says this is the value that's placed on you and this is the new standing that's been freely credited to you by Jesus' resurrection. So look, you might feel like you don't belong, that you're too far gone for a number of reasons, but the empty tomb, it counters each one of those reasons and raises you up to a new standing and gives you a new identity that you had no part to play in and no say in. So it can never be taken from you, can never be overturned from you. In other words, if Jesus is your teacher, then your name is on his lips. He knows you. He has raised you to a new station. He's elevated you and esteemed you. So what defines you, okay? What defines you? Who are you, really? You are who Jesus has declared you to be. You are what Jesus has achieved for you. A righteous standing before God and nothing else defines you. Nothing else has a final say over you. But our new standing becomes more powerful as we keep reading. Let's keep reading through the story and close it up here. Verses 17 and 18. Jesus turns to her and says to her, don't cling to me for I have not yet ascended to my father. What he's saying there is don't get used to this. Like I'm, I'm going back to my home in heaven. I'm going to send the spirit. So don't cling to me because this is only temporary. But look what he says. But go to my brothers, that's the disciples, and say them to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, that he has said these things to her. So she passes along the message. She passes along the message. Now, what's the message? You're my brothers, and I'm going to my Father, who is now your Father. I'm going to my God, who is now your God. And this is really scandalous, because remember what the disciples have just done to Jesus they've just turned on him in his greatest moment of need. They've just betrayed him to save their own skin. And yet Jesus tells Mary that these men are his brothers. And if brothers, then they now have the same father, which means they are co-equal with Jesus. Jesus is the son who is always delighted in by the father. If these men, these traitors are his brothers, they are now delighted in by the father. So Jesus... This is so wonderful. As you track the story of the disciples, they were once nobodies. They were far off from Jesus, far off from God. He brings them and calls them disciples, students. Then John 15, he calls them friends. Now John chapter 9, chapter 20, they are brothers. And that's what the resurrection does. It brings us into co-equality with Jesus before his father who is now our father. In this grace, it's not only for the disciples. It's also for me. It's also for you. We, like them, are siblings of Jesus. We are children of God. That is now our status. You remember the parable of the prodigal son? The prodigal son, the younger brother, just goes away and and lives wastefully, spending all his money, all his energy on uh, the here and now, living a hedonistic life. The elder brother, the older brother in that story is bent out of shape when the father receives that son back. Can't believe that the father would just wipe the slate clean. What it does is it invalidates that older brother's righteousness. Like, look, God, look, all I've, d- look, Father, all I've done for you. I've never let you down and turned on you, yet you're forgiving him so quickly. Well, what does that mean for me? My goodness not, must not mean that much. The whole point of that story is that Jesus is the true, and elder, the true elder brother. The elder brother that never was. The proper righteous older brother in that scenario would have left his father's house and went to seek and save his younger brother, sparing no expense, using all of his inheritance, if he must, to go reconcile his lost brother back to the Father. That's what Jesus has done for each and every single one of us, being sent to earth from heaven, living as we have, but without sin, dying in our place, being resurrected by the Father, now inviting us next to him, to stand next to him and enjoy the same standing before God. Remember how we began. Sin has fractured everything. The world can never quite reach its potential. Mankind enslaved to sin, trying to be their own God without goodness, without power. We're alienated from God, walking away from him, walking in opposition to him. But you remember the word of promise. There will be a future offspring who crushes the head of the serpent and completely wipes away sin and death and creates a new humanity. And that new creation has occurred. And that new standing is now given to you and I. The relationship with God that we were created for is returned to us. So my question I just leave you with, that you have to now wrestle with, is first, two questions, not one, two. You've been made a new creation. Not one day in heaven, not one day in the resurrection of the dead, But right here, right now, in the middle of history, you can be transformed and changed. And so are you becoming what you are? Are you yielding yourself to the gospel, yielding yourself to God in relationship with him in such a way that he's actually bringing about in you what he already sees in you? And my second question is, are you taking advantage of your standing that you have before God? Or are you letting your sin and your mistakes and your regret get in your head and get the final word? Those things have no power over you. You can mess up. You can sin big time and pivot and turn around to God and receive His grace and mercy every single time because the basis of your standing is not your goodness or badness, but the empty tomb with two angels at the head and the foot screaming out to us, Final atonement has already been made. And so, are you becoming what you are? And are you taking advantage of this incredible gift of grace, your new standing that you have? Before God in Christ, let's pray. Father, we come to you and we thank you for what you've achieved for us. We are lost. We have been so lost, Lord, and without you, we have no hope. We can never be righteous. We can never get back what we lost in the fall. But you, God, have ransomed us by sending our elder brother Jesus to come and reconcile us to you. Now we're draped in the perfect righteousness of of Him. Thank you, God. All we can say is thank you, thank you. Praise your name for saving us. Amen. For more information about Citizens Church, please go to citizensannapolis.com.